Hello from sunny Austin, Texas, and welcome to the Healthcare Soothsayer podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Bonnie Clipper, and yes, I'm a nurse. I have worked for more than 30 years as a nurse, chief nurse executive, innovation strategist, and speaker. I have taken the message of Nursing Innovation International and look forward to continuing this message to transform health. This podcast will bring you thought leaders and ideas that you may not have otherwise heard from. Enjoy the show. Our guest today is Dr. Stephan Davis, Director of the Master of Health Administration Program at University of North Texas Health Science Center School of Public Health and Regent at Large for the American College of Healthcare Executives District 4. Stephan, welcome to Healthcare Soothsayers. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. And I'm so excited to be talking to you. You have a really unique background and you're kind of an undercover nurse. Can you give us a little understanding of what you do? Yes. I've never heard that term before, undercover undercover nurse, but I love that. Um, And yes, many of the roles that I've been in in healthcare haven't required nurse licensure or nursing education. Um, So currently I serve as the director of the Master of Health Administration program, as you mentioned. Um, So this is preparing the next generation of healthcare leaders. These tend to be healthcare generalists, although some of them do have, uh, some of our students have clinical backgrounds as well, Uh, but most of them are non-clinical and focus on leadership and management in healthcare. So I teach our courses in organizational leadership, strategic management and marketing. I also have oversight of the program. Um, I've created a new uh, mission statement uh, for the program with our, in collaboration with our faculty and really focused on improving the human condition through healthcare leadership. And, you know, for, for me, diversity, equity, and inclusion is always critical and paramount to everything that I do. One of the things that we've done in our program is established inclusive leadership as one of our programmatic cornerstones. Um, so we're doing a lot of really exciting things at the Health Science Center. That's awesome. Can you tell us a little bit more about um, inclusive leadership and what that means? Yeah, so inclusive leadership is really looking at the diversity that exists within the workforce in in some instances, areas where, where it may not exist in the workforce, where we need to really improve the representation of historically underrepresented and excluded groups, and really bringing everyone to the table. Um, I recently attended the American College of Healthcare Executives Congress and Healthcare Leadership, and the gold medal recipient this year was Chuck Stokes. And he began with saying that in his acceptance speech for the award, that it's so important as we look at diversity that we're not just looking at increasing the representation of those who are invited to sit at the table, but that we actually listen to their voices, that their voices are heard, and that they're equitably integrated into decisions that are actually made in the organization. So to me, that's so powerful when we think about where we're going with inclusive leadership. It's not about just the numbers, which we focus on for so long in DNI work, diversity and inclusion work, really just getting more Black people to the table, more women to the table. We need to actually listen to them. We need to actually have them in positions of influence and power and decision-making in the organization. And so inclusive leadership is all about understanding, what am I bringing to the table as a leader? 
what are my areas um, where I might be underrepresented or I might have a minority identity? What areas of privilege do I bring to the table? So for instance, when I look at myself uh, in that context as a black member of the gender and sexual minority community, as a millennial and as a male in the context of nursing, certainly I have some underrepresented and minority identities, but I'm also a cisgender man. I also have had the privilege of being highly educated at some of the top universities in the nation. Um, I'm also fully physically able. I also am light-skinned, even though I am a Black person. So there are areas of privilege that I bring to the table. And then, so what do I do with that to leverage my privilege to advocate for others who are underrepresented? You know, for instance, right now, it's really important for me to speak up for women in terms of pay equity, equity and advancing in healthcare leadership. That's so critical. I also need to speak up for Asians right now when we look at Asian hate and the discrimination that they're facing in the midst of COVID-19. You've given us so much to think about here. So I want to go back to what you said about the inclusive leadership and that acceptance speech. I think that nails it, right? That's that's spot on. It isn't just about numbers sort of looking at, looking around the table and saying, hmm, we have eight of those and two of those and one of those and three of those, right? That's not it. It's around bringing people together and truly being empathetic and listening and hearing people for what they share and what they bring to that conversation. So I think that's an amazingly deep piece that we so often forget. Absolutely. And as you talk about you know, all of us looking around to see who is not there. I actually read a very interesting piece. It's probably been about two months and it was something I read on LinkedIn. And it actually said the next time someone invites you to join a board or an advisory board or a high level meeting, instead of saying yes, pass on that opportunity, but insist that instead they bring someone who comes from an underrepresented group instead. And I just thought that was a really neat way to sort of answer th that request or that offer. Have you seen people doing that to offer up their seat to kind of make the uh, table more inclusive? Yes, actually I have. So this was um, a topic that came up in one of the ACHE Congress presentations on gender equity. And one of the panelists, who is an accomplished healthcare leader, uh, she was in conversations with an organization about joining their board um, off and on for a period of about three years. And when it came time for them to finally make the decision about who was going to join the board, they told her, unfortunately, we have to pass on your candidacy, not because we don't think that you're phenomenal, uh, but you know, as a white woman, you wouldn't necessarily contribute to the diversifying our board in the ways that are really critical for us right now. We think that it's really important that we add a person of color to the board. And she said that initially she was obviously a little bit uh, disappointed, disheartened uh, by that conversa conversation because of the amount of time that had been invested into the process. And then she thought, you know, this is absolutely right that they did that. And if I'm going to be an advocate for diversity and inclusion, then that means that sometimes 
I do need to offer up power and share power or relinquish power and give that space to someone else who will increase the diversity of that particular group. So I think that this is something that we're starting to see in healthcare leadership where people are saying, you know what, this is time for me to step aside so that we can increase diversity. You know, that's, I love that. And what a great story that is uh, for that person to tell. And sure, that stings a little bit, right? On the other hand, she has the ability to say, my vacancy created an opening. And that opening is allow someone else to amplify their voice. That's what's going to become more important because we really have to be inclusive, right? It's the overused term, but we really have to do that. So I have a question then. How do we see, how do you see diversity, equity, inclusion changing as we go forward in leadership? Are we teaching it differently? Are we bringing young people in that perhaps we haven't in the past? What does that look like through your lens? Yes, I do think that we are changing in the way that we're speaking about diversity. I I don't know if you remember this um, from any of your training previously, but I remember my first exposure as a student to diversity and inclusion education. And back then we talked a lot about cultural competence. It was about basically memorizing stereotypes and various facts about diverse groups. And many of those stereotypes, while sometimes were true or grounded in some reality, um, there were some that were actually quite offensive and and perhaps harmful even in perpetuating um, systemic racism. So I think that we've come a long way in the way that we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion. I think that, you know, we still have a long way to go. There also needs to be recognition that not everyone necessarily agrees that this is important work. Uh, There are some people who feel as though, you know, we need to talk about it right now for, um, you know, in remembrance of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Aubrey. We have clear and blatant um, acts of hate against the Asian community, as I mentioned. There are some people who feel that this is a moment where we need to talk about these issues, but then we'll get beyond it and move forward. To me, this is an ongoing effort. And one of my favorite definitions related to inclusion comes from the Association of American Colleges and Universities and their inclusive excellence model. And they define inclusion as the active, intentional, and ongoing engagement with diversity in ways that increase one's cognitive sophistication and empathic understanding of the complex ways individuals interact within systems and institutions. And I know that that's a mouthful, but one of the reasons that I love that definition so much is that our engagement with diversity is active, intentional, and ongoing, and it really should evolve over time. You know, I'll give the example that even though I'm a gender and sexual minority, the way that I speak about trans issues today and show up for trans individuals today is quite different than probably what I thought about trans advocacy 15 years ago, because that's not necessarily my space. But I know now in my evolution in diversity, equity, and inclusion, that there are ways that I need to show up as an ally for members of my community and beyond. I need to champion issues that don't affect me, because it's only through creating what I believe is a coalition of the marginalized that we will actually move the needle and create real and lasting change. 
You know, that is so incredibly profound, Stefan, because I, I have two thoughts, one of which I laughed actually out loud because on Wednesday I met with an association and probably about uh, 30 or so of their um, kind of their, I don't want to say leaders, but people that were more engaged. And we were actually talking about how do we develop cultural competence. And the the sort of tongue in cheek joke of that was all of their organizations do exactly what you said, right? They come up with a learning module, it's in their LMS, or it's a couple of pages long, you read it. And It says, you know, certain black people do this, Asian people do this, Arab Americans do this, right? And, and it's basically all these stereotypical generalizations. And then there's a quiz. That's not how we develop cultural competence. So we're going to have to completely blow that model up. Absolutely. <laughs> I couldn't agree with you more. That almost seems so rudimentary, like 1950s now, when you think about trying to accomplish that task that way, it's kind of embarrassing. So that's clearly an opportunity for us. And even I had someone on a couple months ago talking about virtual reality. Virtual reality, uh, many of these different systems now have DEI built into every scenario. So when you make assumptions, you could be 100% wrong about your assumptions because everybody is different. So there are going to be some very interesting ways that we teach that. And I think that's something that we should absolutely stay tuned on. Definitely. So let's talk a little bit about the fact that you're a nurse and you have a somewhat non-traditional role. Where, where else do you think we're going to start to see nurses show up? And, and how can we speed that up? How can we get nurses in other places? Yeah, that's such an important question. Uh, you know, having been in a nursing faculty role before, one of my pet peeves with nursing education is that we feel as though as educators, we're only preparing individuals to go into direct clinical practice and practice as an RN And then we hope that they'll come back to school and pursue an advanced practice role. I think that that's a little bit limiting. While that's, that's certainly where the majority of the nursing workforce will be, in a, either a direct care role or in an APRN role, I think that we need to do more to cultivate leadership and education skills. Um, you know, there's a tremendous opportunity in case management and looking at population health. I would love to see more nurses at the forefront of public health. Uh, you know, at, currently at my school of public health, it's only me and one other nurse um, who serve on our faculty. And I think that, that nursing obviously has a tremendous role to play in public health as the largest segment of the healthcare workforce and the, the profession that is consistently rated as the most trusted. And at a moment when trust has been lost in our healthcare systems and trust has been lost in our public health infrastructure, when we look at vaccine hesitancy, who better to reestablish trust? Who better to really reinforce that the vaccine is safe and efficacious than nurses? I think that we have a tremendous role to play not just in clinical practice, but in leadership and public health. And so I would love to see more programs focused on leadership development for nurses. I would love to see more nurses in faculty roles beyond schools of nursing. I would love to see more nurses running for political office. Uh, these, are, these are things that I think that if we're going to really nurse America back to health, uh, I think that nurses are at the center of that. 
You know, I couldn't agree more. It sounds like you're in my head because those are things that I espouse regularly. We need to have nurses in all kinds of roles. And one of the things that we often do as nurses is we limit ourselves to jobs that have the word nurse in it or job descriptions that say a nursing license is required. And that really isn't relevant, right? Because nurses have the ability and, and so many nurses have either a second degree or even a third degree. So nursing is a philosophy. It's almost a state of mind. It's a skill set that you bring with you. And nursing never leaves you. So whatever role you pursue, you have the ability to bring your nursing lens with you. And I like to think that it is a much more empathetic, compassionate, much more holistic, much more inclusive, family-friendly, very dynamic, right? So when we bring our nursing lens, regardless of the role, we do think different. We do act differently. We do come prepared with different ideas and different questions. So I love the idea that nurses are moving into other areas. I think it's fantastic. Yes, hopefully we start to see more of it. <laughs> absolutely. And and I think your comment about nurses running for office, to anyone that's listening to this, I absolutely encourage you, run for office, school board, local, state, national, run, 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 right? Because we need to have more of that thought process and that compassionate and concern for everyone. We need to have that out there. Today, we only have three nurses in Congress, and we should aim to double, triple, or quadruple that over the next couple of years. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. <laughs> so, Stefan, let me ask you a little bit about where you see us going in regards to the catalyst that COVID has provided us. This has disrupted everything that we do. What do you see coming out of this from your lens? What do you see that's going to remain in place for um, the short to long-term future? Yes, um, really important question. You know, I think that that for me, one of the things that that has, COVID has really illuminated um, for many people, which was obvious to us in nursing for a long time, was that burnout was a real problem. It, issues of engagement, issues of resiliency, were things that we needed to be focused on pre-COVID. COVID has exacerbated those problems, and so I do think that organizations as they turn the corner with COVID-19, I think there's gonna be a huge need to invest in their workforce and really focus on resilience and, and addressing burnout. I do think that we are going to likely see a wave of, of people um, probably who were considering retiring in a few years, uh, but you know this past year has been incredibly challenging for them and they might accelerate that time frame. Um, I know a couple of people that that's personally applicable to. Um, so unfortunately, we might have to look at, you know, what do we do with succession planning for critical roles? How do we really develop pathways to various roles in nursing where we might be losing some people? I also think that this focus on telehealth is going to be with us for the long term. And how do we engage with patients more effectively using applications using telehealth platforms, that's all going to be really critical. So obviously we were shifting from inpatient to outpatient, going more to the home environment for care, looking at how we uh, deployed mobile services. 
I think that all of that is going to continue. The other thing that I think that is going to be really important for us to look at, our hospital infrastructure clearly uh, was very much challenged by COVID-19 and particularly in some key geographic areas of the country. I think that we need to look at our hospital system and our infrastructure truly as a system. How do we create better linkages? If one part of the system is overwhelmed, how do we offload some of that burden to other facilities? How do we also ensure that every licensed bed within within a hospital can also be utilized as an ICU bed if needed? So I think that this idea of a patient being in a bed and needing to be transferred to a a specific place that is ICU um, is a bit archaic. We've known that we need the ability to level up and titrate the level of care. And that might mean obviously switching out staffing. But I do think that we need to look at our resources and organizations and how we can be more innovative with how we manage care, whether that's needed at the ICU level, step down, or in an acute care floor. I think those are incredibly astute observations because truly between the workforce, the infrastructure, and how we're seeing care delivered, you're exactly right. And I would even take your last comment a little further in not only do we need to think about every potential bed as a critical care bed, we also have the ability now to deliver this care at home. So we're going to continually challenge the location at which the care is even being provided. Absolutely. Wow, this is awesome. Well, this feels like a really good place to put a pin in it for today. You have given us a lot to think about. And I'm extremely grateful, Stefan, for you taking the time to be with us today on Healthcare Soothsayers podcast. Thank you. This has been so fun. Super cool. And be sure to check out the show notes for this show to find Stefan's contact information and to learn more about his work. And thanks again for being with us today. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Healthcare Soothsayers. I really do appreciate it. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and share it with your network. That is how we grow and learn. If you have ideas for show topics or guests, please reach out to me directly at ThoughtLeaderRN on Twitter. For information about this show or any of the others in the Touchpoint Media Network, please check them out at touchpoint.health.